the United Nations is an intergovernmental organization comprising 193 members. Founded in 1945 in San Francisco, the United Nations' mission is to promote international cooperation and to create and maintain international order. The United Nations can be divided into six parts. The General Assembly, the closest thing it has to a parliament, the Security Council of the five leading members, the Economic and Social Council, which is the International Economic and Social Cooperation and Development Arm, the Secretariat for providing studies, information and facilities needed by the UN, the International Court of Justice, which is the Judiciary, and the UN Trusteeship Council, and an active part since 1994 whose role was to deal with colonial countries. The United Nations' agencies include the World Bank, World Health Organization, World Food Programme, UNESCO and UNICEF. The leader of the United Nations is often referred to as the Secretary General, though it would be more accurate to describe him as the Bureaucrat in Chief, as the real leaders of the UN are the five leaders of the Security Council. It is actually quite difficult to sum up what the United Nations does. It is such a sprawling organisation. There are the five main parts we mentioned earlier. It is these that mostly gain the headlines, especially the Security Council, which has 15 members, 10 of those rotating and 5 permanent. The permanent members were drawn from the victors of the Second World War, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Russia and China. These permanent members have veto powers over any resolution put before the UN Security Council, essentially making these five the world policemen, because, as its name suggests, the Security Council is charged with maintaining international peace and security. While peace and security is the most famous and obvious facet of what the UN does, general international order and cooperation is the most under-recognised fact of what it does. Agencies range from the IMF, the International Maritime Organisation, Food and Agricultural Organisations, World Intellectual Property Organisations and many more. The remarkable thing about the United Nations is that almost every single human on earth is part of a country that is in the UN. Only five states or territories are not part of the UN. Taiwan, Kosovo, the Vatican, Palestine and Western Sahara. This universality enables actual cooperation and dialogue between the whole world. It goes without saying that there has never been anything like the United Nations before. Well, apart from the League of Nations. The UN is not perfect, and I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. There are corruption, scandal, and many more things we could go into. But it is obviously and clearly a massive part of how we live. There were international treaties and conferences before the League of Nations. The International Committee of the Red Cross and the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 were broad arrangements to regulate conflict between participants. But they had nothing like the universality of what, considering what would happen in a few years after they were signed, was needed.
The July crisis leading to the First World War was a disaster of an inability to talk and converse. The loose arrangement of the Concert of Europe was dead, and the miscommunication and lack of trust between the participants was the reason Europe fell over the brink. Four years later, and 41 million casualties later, and Woodrow Wilson instigated the League of Nations to try and maintain world peace. Built on the idea of collective security, it was an utter failure during the early 1930s, as neither Britain nor France were prepared to play world policemen. Yet the main reason for its failure was that a member of the Allies who won the First World War didn't join. Had the United States engaged with its own creation, it would have been able to support Britain and France in challenging the rise of fascism and protecting League of Nations resolutions. With the United States in self-enforced isolation, the two great powers in the world were more than capable of maintaining peace in Spain, stopping German rearmament and Italian aggression, and the combined French and Royal Navy could have stopped the Japanese. But the United States, as a Pacific power, would have been far more effective at this. And then we all know what happens next. War. On the 12th of June 1941, representatives of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, and the exiled governments of Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Greece, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, Poland and Yugoslavia, as well as Charles de Gaulle of France, met in London and signed the Declaration of St James's Palace. This was the first of six conferences that led up to the founding of the United Nations and the Charter of the United Nations. It was Franklin Roosevelt who suggested using the term United Nations, and Churchill, citing Lord Byron's use of the term in a poem about the Battle of Waterloo, accepted it. On the 29th of December 1941, less than a month after Pearl Harbour, the Declaration of the United Nations was signed, and this now became the official term to call the Allies. To join the Allies, countries would have to sign the Declaration and declare war on the Axis powers. In 1943, the idea came to formalise this new alliance into something more substantial, with Franklin Roosevelt considering making the United Nations his most important legacy. In 1944, talks between the great powers led to the outlining of the United Nations. The end of the war led to its establishment. The official starting date was the 24th of October 1945. On the 18th of April 1946, the League of Nations became officially dissolved. Straight off the bat, and the United Nations was at the centre of much controversy and argument, as one would expect with a dozen countries all over the world coming together to debate. Perhaps the more remarkable thing was that it managed to get through these periods and is still with us and functioning just about. The first major decision made by the United Nations was the partition of Palestine, which led to the 1947 to 1948 Civil War. The 1950 invasion of South Korea by the North proved the first real chance the United Nations got to prove itself as superior to the League of Nations. 
which had been unable to get leading powers to follow through with the idea of collective security. With the USSR boycotting the UN to protest the fact that Taiwan, rather than mainland China, was on the Security Council, it was with ease that Resolution 82 was passed, enabling the United States and other UN members to come to the aid of the South Koreans. It should be noted that US involvement was more about trying to contain communist forces rather than any idealistic notions of territorial sovereignty. After early losses and being pushed down to the south towards Pusan, the south and the United Nations forces were surrounded, holding on to only about 10% of the Korean territory. Slowly, however, UN forces pushed back. With backups from US garrisons in both people and materials from Japan, they were able to reinforce the Pusan perimeter. Whilst the hero of the Pacific Theatre during the Second World War, Douglas MacArthur, planned an invasion force. Incheon, right in the north of South Korea, and about 100 miles behind enemy lines, but mostly undefended, was the perfect opportunity. An amphibious landing was launched and ended up being decisive in being able to push back the North Koreans out of the south. Three years of stalemate later, the status quo antebellum was restored. While MacArthur was all for rollback of the North's regime, and possibly even China too, what really matters to us was that the United Nations was confirmed as a genuine and credible organisation. Far more genuine and credible than the League of Nations ever was. Later in the 1950s, it saw the first use of UN peacekeepers. They were sent to force an end to the Suez Crisis. Yet, despite some UN successes, there is always an equivalent failure. The UN was unable to do anything about Soviet invasion of Hungary, but it was able to stop the breakaway state of Katang from the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1960. The 1960s saw a spate of membership with the decolonization of Africa, and in 1960 alone, 17 new countries joined. This was able to shift the power of the General Assembly away from a US organisation to a global organisation. And in 1971, mainland China was finally given the seat on the Security Council over Taiwan. With the new members and the shift in balance of power away from the US, it became impossible to actually solve the very geopolitical issues that it was set up to defend. Issues in Vietnam the Six-Day War in the Middle East and the Indo-Pakistan War of 1965 proved that the UN was unable to fulfil its core objective, at least during this Cold War period. Indeed, with all the conflicts of various sizes and actors the UN would have to deal with, it did have very little success in its peacekeeping missions. The Gulf War in Kuwait, peacekeeping in Namibia and the restoration of democracy to South Africa were more exceptions rather than the rule. The failures in Somalia, Bosnia and Rwanda were outstanding. And if you've ever seen the film Hotel Rwanda and not had your heart a little bit broken by the sheer inability of the Blue Helmets to do anything about it, I don't think you're human. So why is the UN on my list? 
surely simply having a talking shop between nations while nice and idealistic it's hardly a great invention in and of itself well i think firstly it should be pointed out that there has been no major conflicts between great powers since 1945. While millions died in wars around the world since the Second World War, these have often been civil wars rather than conventional conflict. It would seem the UN recognised their inability to solve many of these civil conflicts because, by the 1970s, its budget for social and economic development was greater than that of its peacekeeping budget. And yet we still have poverty in Africa. People are still dying and starving in places like India and many other places around the world. We see constant charity drives, the inability to solve the AIDS crisis, thousands of people dying from malaria, gender inequality, children dying, and no seeming end to much misery around the world. So in the year 2000, the United Nations released its Millennium Development Goals which were designed to, by 2015, have reached the following targets. Eradicating extreme poverty and hunger, achieving universal primary education, promoting gender equality and empowering women, reducing child mortality, improving maternal health, combating HIV, AIDS, malaria and other diseases, ensuring environmental sustainability and developing a global partnership for development. Now, whether these goals have actually been fully achieved is one thing, but what is undeniable is that the global community, through the United Nations, has facilitated some progress, even if it's not the complete and absolute success many had hoped for. Now, some of these goals may have happened anyway, but it's worth taking it one by one to look at what has been achieved. 1. Eradicating extreme poverty and hunger. The target of reducing extreme poverty rates, people living on just $1.25 a day, by half was met five years ahead of the 2015 deadline. Globally, the number of people living in extreme poverty has fallen from 1.9 billion in 1990 to 836 million in 2015. However, the target of halving the proportion of people suffering from hunger has been missed. The proportion of undernourished people in developing regions has fallen from 23.3% in 1990 to 12.9% in 2014. Number 2. Achieving universal primary education. Primary school enrolment figures have shown an impressive rise, but the goal of achieving universal primary education has been missed. The primary school enrolment rate in developing regions reached 91% in 2015, up from 83% in 2000. Number 3. Promoting gender equality and empowering women. About two-thirds of developing countries achieved gender parity in primary education. Progress has been particularly strong in Southern Asia. Only 74 girls were enrolled in primary school for every 100 boys in 1990. Today, 103 girls are enrolled for every 100 boys. Number 4. Reducing child mortality. The global under 5 mortality rate has declined by more than half since 1990, dropping from 90 to 43 deaths per 1,000 live births. This falls short of the targeted drop of two-thirds. 
In practical terms, this means 16,000 children under five continue to die every day from preventable causes. Number five, improving maternal health. Since 1990, the maternal mortality ratio has been nearly cut in half. This is an impressive result, but also falls short of the two-thirds reduction aimed for. There were an estimated 289,000 maternal deaths in 2013. Number six, combating HIV AIDS, malaria and other diseases. The target of halting and beginning to reverse the spread of HIV AIDS has not been met, although the number of new HIV infections did fall 40% between 2000 and 2013. While 6.2 million malaria deaths have been averted between 2000 and 2015, primarily of children under five in sub-Saharan Africa. The global malaria incidence rate has fallen by an estimated 37% and the mortality rate by 58%. Number seven, ensuring environmental sustainability. Between 1990 and 2015, 2.6 billion people gained access to improved drinking water, meaning the target of halving the proportion of people without safe water was achieved. Worldwide, 2.1 billion people have gained access to improved sanitation. Number eight, develop a global partnership for development. Official development assistance from wealthy countries to developing countries increased by 66% in real terms between 2000 and 2014, reaching $135.2 billion. So when we look at these figures in absolute, it's striking the sheer numbers involved. In 15 years, over a billion people have been taken out of extreme poverty. Even with the rise of China, which doesn't have much to do with the UN, there are hundreds of millions of people to whom their lives are owed to concerted international aid and the coordination between the rich world countries in pledging so much money to help with these types of aims. Following the lukewarm or relative success of the Millennium Development Goals, there has been a follow-up the Sustainable Development Goals, which is basically trying to do the same thing, but this time with 17 goals. These are far more broad-ranging and include action on poverty, hunger, health, education, climate change, gender equality, water, sanitation, energy, urbanisation, environment and social justice. I don't think anybody really expects all these aims to be achieved, but strong progress and coordination which is something the United Nations can offer, would be a great boon to the world. But the United Nations is not perfect. In fact, it is highly flawed. Its structure is so confusing that almost since its founding, it has faced some sort of calls for reform. The beginning of these was the fact that Taiwan, rather than mainland China, held the seat on the Security Council. But since the 1990s, with the rise in global harmony following the end of the Cold War, the increased prosperity of many parts of the world, and the fact that the UN has become an ever more important part of global diplomacy, meant it faced calls for reform. Some of these ideas, such as a global parliamentary assembly with direct elections all over the world, are never going to happen. Same is the idea of a directly elected UN Security General. Mostly because if people can't be bothered to vote in general elections in their own country, 
who would vote for this? Secondly, I can't see autocratic regimes being too happy to prime people for democracy and teaching them to vote. And thirdly, because I can't see Americans and Europeans being too happy about it, considering China has the same population as the entirety of the Western world, they would be at risk of losing ever more influence to China. But the most commonly cited area for UN reform is the Security Council. With 15 members, 10 of which rotate, there have been calls to increase the amount of rotating members. Security Council resolutions are voted on by all 15 members, but if one of the permanent members vetoes it, the resolution cannot pass. Resolutions are legally binding, and while many are insignificant to all but diplomats, occasionally, such as no-fly zones over Libya or actions against North Korea, these turn into huge events in world history. And so debate about the Security Council is a big deal. So what are these debates? One idea by former Secretary General Kofi Annan is to increase the number of non-permanent members to represent more of the world. One main talking point is to try and increase the number of permanent members on the council with veto rights. The commonly talked about additions to the Security Council generally have one block on them joining. The main candidates are Brazil, who finds support from much of the world, and even the United States, yet the United States wants them to join without a veto. Germany are another candidate, but their lack of military power, plus the idea there are already two European countries on the council, means it wouldn't do much for diversity. India, with the second largest population and fifth largest economy, and being a nuclear power, is backed by everybody on the council apart from China, who are lukewarm about the idea due to India's support for Japan. I personally think India is the most likely to gain Security Council status at some point, though with it having semi-regular border conflicts with Pakistan, and not great relations with China, and with Pakistan being a great ally of China, there is still much to do on Indian membership. Japanese membership, owing to its huge economy and large contributions to UN budgets, is another possibility, but is vehemently opposed by China due to nationalist reasons. Japan currently does also not have the capability to go to war due to its pacifist constitution saying it cannot go to war other than in self-defence, though this has been reinterpreted in 2014 to say that Japan can support an ally in self-defence. Other ideas have been to have an African seat on the council or an Islamic country. Though, personally, I'm generally not in favour of making the Security Council too big. It's already difficult enough to make decisions with only five members. The United Nations is not my idea of how the world should be governed. But imagine I had a device which would help to avoid great power conflict help promote dialogue and cooperation between every country on Earth, change the lives of billions through its development programmes, and we would probably rate that invention as one of the greatest of all time. But call it an intergovernmental organisation, and people will suddenly find a reason to criticise it. As we've seen, there is plenty to be critical over the UN about. But it has done some remarkable things. To keep 
the great powers in a state of peace with each other through mediation and dialogue is one of its great achievements. Of course, there are other reasons for this state of peace. But if you were to look at the start of the First World War, all they would have needed would have been a United Nations type organisation where the diplomats could have talked it out. Whilst the Second World War needed a UN organisation where the idea of collective security was taken seriously. Alas, the League of Nations was not that. So here we have the UN, which apart from Russia in Crimea, has pretty much entirely nixed the idea of aggressive annexations of foreign territories through the threat of action by collective security. It has helped lift billions of people out of extreme poverty in just over a decade, while helping many others in various areas of life in the developing world. So, for all of these reasons, the United Nations is on my list at number 87 of the greatest inventions of all time.